Hey everyone, how you doing? This is another week of the Live Life Aggressively podcast with Sincere Hogan and my man Mike Mahler. And man, super stoked about this week's show. Got a great guest, man. Super excited. Yeah, I'm a big fan of our guest today, Robert Green. Same here. And he's the he's the author of 48 Laws of Power, Mastery, and the 50th Law. And you know, I was just on a long flight to Holland and back. And normally, long flights are a nuisance, but I tell you, the time went by because in between listening to Robert's books on audio.com. And when I got fed up of that, I would start reading them. <laughs> yeah. And when I got fed up of that, I would meditate <laughs> and, had, and then the books would be circulating in my brain. So it made that <laughs> 10 hours and six hours stuck in a Heathrow go by much faster than normal. So Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, well thank you very much for having me on the show. Glad I helped you on your flight. <laughs> yeah, we love your books. Just excellent stuff. And I know that you don't have a whole lot of time, so we're just going to jump right into this, and I think we'll get into your background a little bit as we go on. But I've been really focused on the 48 Laws of Power. That's the one that has really stuck in my mind the most out of the three of your books that I've read, and I like all of them. But as as I read 48 Laws of Power, it reminds me of so many different circumstances I found myself in in the corporate world, meaning that people above me often used these laws. (laughs) <laughs> I never really thought about it until I read it in your book. But as I, as I go through laws like law number seven, take credit for other people's work, and then law 11, keep people dependent on you. Law 12, be honest so you can be dishonest later. Law 20, don't commit to any cause, play people against each other. And then law 26, utilize scapegoats to take the blame for your mistakes. <laughs> I can't help but wonder – is it possible to be a good person and follow the 48 laws of power? Um, I suppose theoretically uh, you could be a good person, um, but a a leader of a large company or of a country or of any group is inevitably going to have to deal with rivals and then people who aren't necessarily good. So the question always comes down to, are you ready to handle that, or are you going to be naive? Right. So you could right. have somebody who's a very decent, nice person, well-intentioned, very moral and ethical, but when it comes to the hard decisions in dealing uh, with an enemy that might be more unscrupulous, they're going to have to let go a little bit of some of those ethical considerations and play the game differently and are they willing to do that so that's where i make the draw the line you have a president like a franklin delano roosevelt who i happen to admire think was one of our greatest presidents and he by all accounts was a very decent person um good father relatively good husband um, but but he was he could be quite Machiavellian. He he had to deal with the Republican Party, much like Obama is dealing with now. That would be could be right. pretty nasty. And he knew how to play the game on their level. So that's really what it's about. I'm saying in the 48 Laws of Power that power is a neutral thing. It's a tool, like a hammer or any kind of tool, and it can be used in a good way for moral purposes and ethical ways, and it can be used for very unethical purposes. It depends on the person, but the tool itself is simply neutral. Right. So in other words, you can, it seems like manipulation is a critical skill to develop, and you can use it for ends that are ultimately beneficial for the masses, or you can use it as a way to just get whatever you want at whatever cost. Yeah, I mean, to, to return once again to Roosevelt or to World War II, you're, you're, you're fighting against Hitler, 
uh, and you're trying to end the war um, with the D-Day campaign, and you end up using massive amounts of manipulation and deception to deceive Adolf Hitler as to where the landings are going to occur. So there are people who say, oh, manipulation, deception, it's always wrong. There's never a case where it's right. It's just morally wrong by any standard. Well, then what do you say in, in a situation like that in warfare right. uh, where it's absolutely essential and so I believe a leader has to understand the dynamics of manipulation and upon occasion will have to use it. Right. I mean, deception is something that's critical that all of us use probably on a day-to-day basis well, on, varying, on varying levels. That's certainly true. Now, I know you worked in Hollywood before you yes. started writing books. How much of that experience influenced your desire to get into these topics, such as the artist seduction, 48 Laws of Power. Was that a big influence for pushing yes, you down the path? Yeah. I mean, there are other influences, reading a lot of history, uh, just generally observing people in all different walks of life, but Hollywood played a decisive role in that. Um, it's a, it's a, a social arena where people uh, seem to be very nice. Everybody loves you. You're the, <laughs> right. your, your film is just the best, but really they're thinking something quite differently, and then they're acting in ways that can be very manipulative. I, I worked for a film director. I worked for several film directors, so nobody can Google this and figure out who I'm talking about. Uh, but he, he would, um, uh, he, he, early on in his career, he had been a producer, and he wanted to direct a project that he had himself had put together, uh, but he was too young to do the project himself. Um, and as a producer, it, looked, it would look a little weird that he'd also be directing it. So what he did was he hired someone else to be the director who looked like they, they were good, but he himself knew this person would never succeed at the job. They were in over their heads. And he did it on purpose so that once this person started directing the film and it fell apart, he could now come in and rescue it and become the director, which is law number three, conceal your intentions. Right. And it worked mm-hmm. brilliantly, and he came in and he rescued the project, and he directed it and then went on to direct other things. But in the meantime, he had kind of screwed this other guy's career a little bit. You know, he ruined his reputation to some extent. Those kinds of things happen quite a bit. It's a power-hungry environment. But nobody talks about it. Nobody discusses these kinds of games that are being played it's like they can discuss all of the dirty sex secrets and who's right. who's into bondage and who's doing this and that <laughs> but when it comes to power for some reason it's a great taboo and i i got a kind of a boyish uh, thrill out of revealing the things that everybody kind of wanted to keep secret so that definitely played a role in the 48 laws yeah, it seems no one's really prepared for that environment because, as you said, I've never really come across books that delve into it anywhere close as, as you have. And it's, this should be basically a college course, in my opinion, because in college, you're not prepared at all for what you're about to get into in the jungle out there. You're just kind of thrown out there, and you're like, whoa, what's happening? So, I mean, a, a course on the 48 Laws of Power, just so that even if – I always argue with people, even if you don't want to necessarily apply – the laws and the 48 laws of power, yeah. you should be aware of them. You'd be aware, so, exactly. Yeah, just so you know when it. other people are trying to use them on you. And it yeah. seems that so many of us are so naive because we don't, no one even comes close to telling us any of this kind of stuff. It's often, 
oh, just look for win-win situations and get along with people. And it's this kind of campy teachings that we're brought up with. Right. And then we get a rude awakening, especially in a place like Los Angeles, because I lived there for several years myself and was never involved with Hollywood. But just general interactions in that town seemed to be yeah. a lot of deception. Like when you first move out there, everyone seems super nice. I'm like, I'm coming from the East Coast, Washington, D.C., where everyone's up front and, yeah. frankly, super rude. If you've ever been to downtown <laughs> Washington, D.C., I mean, if you don't hit the floor at, when a light turns green, you have 20 people trying to tear your head off. So you right. go to Los Angeles, and everyone seems like everyone you meet seems like the nicest person in the world. And then after one conversation, <laughs> there's always some agenda. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would meet someone and say, hey, you know what? Uh, would you mind lending me $500? I'm kind of strapped for rent right now. And this is someone I literally met after a few minutes. Or, hey, could you come over to my house this weekend and help me move? And it oh, seems really? like those kind of experiences were so common in that town. And that when you're in Hollywood, it has to be magnified many times. Were, were you kind of fed up of that whole world? And is that, what, is that one of the big motivations that got you into wanting to be a writer? How did you make the transition? Well, I was a writer. I was working in Hollywood as a writer, and I'd been a okay. writer prior to that in journalism, a little bit in television. And then, and then when I was bumming around the world doing different jobs, I was always writing things. So I'd always wanted to be a writer. But... Um, you know, I didn't like uh, I didn't like Hollywood because, for various reasons, as, as a writer, uh, you have no control over what you do. Eighty people come in and change what you wrote, and the process is just really uninteresting to me. And then the results don't interest me that much. I just wasn't that into it. It didn't connect with me in a deep way. Right. So um, when I had the chance, I met a man in 1995 who's a a book producer, and he asked me if I had any ideas for a book. Um, and as I improvised the idea that would turn into the 48 Laws of Power, it just suddenly seemed clear to me that writing books was what I was born to do because I could control it. Um, unlike journalism, I could write something that could last more than a week and people would pay attention to. And unlike Hollywood, I, I had pretty much control over it and I kind of like having control it just was a great fit um, but you know to, to, to say it, it, it's true that Hollywood is worse than a lot of places there's a lot of two-faced stuff going on but it's pretty universal it's human right. nature uh, right when I when I met that man who asked me if I had any ideas for books kind of the turning point in my life we were living in we were in Italy at the time working on a project uh, a new a new media school that was to start up by Benetton and change the world because it was so so enlightened and progressive and it was just all of this bullshit politicking that was going on all of this underhanded stuff so very similar uh to the things I had witnessed in Hollywood maybe a little bit overt so look it, it it's pretty it's pretty nasty in LA but i mean don't be naive about washington politics sure or about Wall Street, or about media in New York, or about what's right. going on in Italy or France. It's human nature. It's not, right. it's not just Los Angeles. So it just happens to be in L.A. It's a little more gross in some ways. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Sincere and I are both in the fitness industry, and it's, it's yeah. ubiquitous in our industry. So you're, yeah. you're absolutely correct. Everywhere, it seems like anytime you have a group together, there's going to be this dynamic. It's just, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So, I mean, your stuff helps you kind of navigate through that stuff so you can kind of harness it to at least further your interests 
as opposed to just being mauled right over it. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I compare it to um, your attitude. It's like a, the warrior stance in, in sword fighting and kind of mm-hmm. the samurai sense mm-hmm. of sword fighting. And it's how you hold yourself, your own attitude, your philosophy to the game, to the, to the contact sport that's about to happen when you enter the social arena. And if your eyes are open and you're aware that these games can happen and are being played, and you're going to detect them before it gets too late, but you're not paranoid, you just are open and alert and ready, um, that's kind of the warrior's pose that you want for this game of life. You don't want to be sitting just in your head all rosy about people, but you don't want to be thinking everybody's, everybody's a potential Hitler. You want a balanced position looking at the game Engaging each person that you deal with, and that's that's sort of what my books are about. Right. Now, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry, sincere. Go ahead. Oh no, Robert. I was just noticing. Um, you just mentioned that you kind of, when you were writing in, as a writer in Hollywood, that you pretty much realized that you know it wasn't for you, and that's when you made decisions just to walk away yep. from it and start writing your own books and, and actually doing the type of writing that you truly enjoyed. And I know you touched on that also in Mastery when you were talking about some of the, some of the greatest names in history. And I think it's actually like in chapter, uh, chapter two, chapter three, it's when you were speaking about, oh man, um, like Freddie Roach um, yeah. and Mozart and Buckmeister Fuller and those guys, just kind of like, you know, these people like set these paths for them already. Like, this is what you're good at. This is what you should be doing. This is what you should right. be doing. And they end up feeling... They felt so frustrated, and eventually just had to come to that realization like, hey, you know what? This is not exactly my dream or my destiny. Somebody imposed this upon me, whether it was their parents, especially the story about Mozart. Um, And they just took took it upon themselves to leave that, and that's how they end up becoming these great names that we know today. If they just stuck around with what was told to them, like, this is is where you should be, and this is good for you, you know, we probably won't even know about these guys. Yeah, it's very true. Um, I mean, everybody has um, a different path in life. Some people are pretty clear uh, when they're very young what they were meant to do, and then there's a relatively straight line Mm -hmm. uh, from the time they enter the work world to what they accomplish. But for most of us, it's not quite like that because you yourself, if you just listen to yourself, you would know what you were meant to do, whether it's sports or business or writing or whatever, but then you've got all these people in your head, your parents, your friends, your teachers, they're telling you this, they're telling you good at that, this is what you should do, this is where you can make money, and you get confused and you get derailed and you end up doing something that isn't quite suited for you. And if you don't wake up at an at an early enough age, you can become uh, somebody who's 35, 40 years old in the wrong career and you're bitter, you haven't accumulated other skills, you're right. downsized or something else happens to you, and you can be in a lot of trouble because you'd ha- you're not sure of what you were meant to accomplish in life. So it's, oh, it's good to make mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. I didn't really discover uh, how to write this book until I was 35, 36 years old, a relatively late age. But I knew that I wanted to write, and I kept writing, and I kept trying, and by making mistakes, I learned what wasn't good, what, what was the right fit. It's, the problem is, is if you end up going into law, but you, but you were meant to be a, a jazz musician, um, and you know, it doesn't, 
you did it because it's make it's lucrative and your parents kind of pushed you into it and you're tuning out and you're not really connecting to it uh, and then you're like 34 35 you haven't been playing music for a long time you can't make that connection and that change anymore i want you the reader to to stop wherever you are and go through this process of of actually looking at the path that you're following and see is this really leading to something five, ten years down the road that I can sustain, that I can be patient with, that I'm going to love? And it's never too late to change. And as you point out, I have stories in there of a person like Freddie Roach, who's a great boxer. Well, not even, I'm sorry, he was a, a boxer himself, but a mediocre boxer who took a lot of punishment and had been doing it for 20 years or so and realized it wasn't the right career Right. He then decided what he had to do was become a trainer, and the the segue to that completely altered his life. He was much better as a trainer than as a boxer, um, but you have to have the courage to make these kinds of changes, and a lot of people are afraid. They're addicted to the paycheck. They're afraid of trying something that might be a little bit different. So really when it comes down to it is how much you want it and how fearless you are in your approach to life yeah i think i think that's a really good point and then when we look at our current recession i think there's a lot more risk in then in pursuing something that you have no passion for just for a check because you're expendable and can be replaced at any time because you haven't developed that skill set that makes you irreplaceable like for example when i used to work for someone else you kind of put in the amount of work that's necessary to keep that job, but you never really have the impetus to push into that mastery level. But when I got into what I do now, fitness, I mean, you, it, it doesn't seem like it's work, but it's work I want to do is the way I describe it. And yeah. it seems that I have way more job security with, within my own business because I'm not going to get laid off by anyone, number one. And two, oh, yeah. I, might, I might have a dip in my income, but it's not going to go down to zero just like that. So it seems like there's more risk in just following something that you have, you have no passion for, then following. How old were you, how old were you when you made that shift? I, mean, I was 28. That's, a, yeah. that's, a, that's the right age to do it. That's the perfect right. yeah. kind of transition. Yeah, I, I, got, I got laid off by three jobs in a row, so that was kind of the signal <laughs> that I should oh. start my own thing. <laughs> laid off for outperforming people above me, which kind of makes more sense now that I've read your book, why I got laid off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just talking about you know that was also in mastery as well. You know, you have all these people in this familiar field, you know, competing for survival for the same spot, and then next thing you know, it's just like when they decide you're no longer worthy of that spot, then you're just kind of looking lost, and you've been spending all your energy trying to like compete for that one position that you know it wasn't you. It really had nothing to do with well, it. It's, like, it's also a numbers game. Uh, if yeah. you're if you're going into a profession where uh, you see, wow, a lot of people are making money in that, and that's what I'm going to do. It's, it seems secure. And, but then you're competing with thousands of other people for the same position, and once you become 30 years old, they can now easily replace you with someone 24, 25, because there are so many right. people right. doing the same thing. But when you follow your own path and you do something with fitness that reflects your own experience and whatever it is that you did, there are only going to be... 10 other people that could possibly com- compete with where you are. So you've increased your odds of success. People don't calculate on a rational way when they're looking at their careers. They think too short-term. They think 
I got to get money, I got to get status and position as quickly as possible. And they don't understand that 15, you're going to be 35 at some point. And are you now in the position when you've gone into law because you didn't want to necessarily? Are you now in a position to make another qualitative leap to a higher place? Or are you going to end up in some dead end where you've gone as far as you can? You're not going to be making any more money. There's no creative challenges left. You're going to get depressed. You're going to leave your wife and end up being uh, alone. And, you know, you, you'll spiral downward. People mm -hmm. make really irrational choices because they're only thinking of the four or five years or what, how they are in their 20s. So <laughs> you want to alter, the, your, alter your time perspective and think a little broader and think, do I want to be doing this when I'm in my 40s? Where am I going to be when I'm in my late 40s? These are, these are important calculations. Yeah, it seems, and that's some of the advice I got from people that were doing what I was doing in my early 20s, saying, look, you need to get out there and develop some real skill set. You don't want to be 45, 46, still doing telesales, basically, telemarketing type stuff. And right. that, that really resonated with me because fitness was always a big passion of mine, but I never really saw a way that made sense for me to get into it and make money. I didn't want to just be a trainer in a gym or anything like that. And then I came across something called kettlebell training, and I really liked it. And it was, I yeah. saw it as a ground floor opportunity. This is back in 2002 before really anyone was training with it or teaching it as, a, as their main unique selling point. Right. And, and it paid off. But one thing that I find really interesting about your work is in some other books, such as The Talent Code and so forth, it talks about 10,000 hours of concerted effort to develop yeah. mastery skill set or to get really good at something. And you say you need to go beyond that. 10,000 is kind of the minimum. You need to go 20,000 or more because when you get to that point, now you can start predicting. Now you can start basically manipulating your industry and predicting where it's going to go, if not make it go in a certain direction. Can you talk about that a little bit more? About how well, I don't, I don't that? really say that you should aim for 20,000 hours because that's okay. kind of ridiculous in that. Uh, <laughs> right. You'll be so intimidated. Really, the 10,000-hour <laughs> rule roughly translates to 10 years, depending right, right. on how intense you are. Um, mm -hmm. If you're really super intense, you can do that many hours in five or seven years. But normally, it's 10 years. So let's say 20,000 hours would be 20 years. I mean, who, when they're 21, wants to think of a 20-year plan like that? It's a little <laughs> crazy. So the thing is, when you enter a field that you love, um, in any way, um, you're not counting the hours. Uh, people asked uh, Henry Ford, um, who was kind of a workaholic, who spent like endless hours developing a combustion engine, and they'd say, how did you have the patience for that 6,000 hours that went into working on that one engine? He said, I never, fe never felt like work. It was like a a puzzle that I love doing. Every day I did it, it was just like exciting. So I never was sitting there counting the time. And that's what happens when you choose the right career. Now, it's never going to be simple. Um, you're going to make some mistakes where you're going to have to n slowly um, alter the path, like I did with writing, in which you're going to try something that doesn't quite work out. Um, but in the course of doing that, as long as you're headed in the right direction, you're, you're accumulating skills and things are happening. And then at a certain point, like with me, you'll discover, oh, writing books is the right thing. And now if I added up the hours I've spent writing books, they would 
be in that 15 to 20,000 hour mark, but I am not sitting there consciously aware of it. Right. It's simply happening because I, I love it and, and I'm excited about it. You look at all of the people who've changed the world um, in some insane way, like uh, Steve Jobs with the iPhone or Thomas Edison um, with, with his inventions or the Google guys or whatever. These people have put in that amount of hours so that at the po- that point they're thinking on another plane. Um, I call it high-level intuition. Right. Um, they have it at their fingertips. They know mm. their field so well that they can sense, ah, this is the next trend that's going to change the world. I'm going to get there before anybody else. If you read the Steve Jobs biography, the, the instant when he recognized the power of uh, an iPod, which seems like a very banal little instrument there, he realized that this is going to change. This is going to be the great shift in technology. And he saw it because of all of those years of working in computers and design, etc. cetera. Um, I could go on and on down the list in music, someone like a John Coltrane and how he altered the, uh, the direction of music in the 20th and 21st century. All of these people have reached that point where they have such a feel for their subject that they know what's going to come next. Now, you don't want to consciously say, I'm going to be the next Steve Jobs or John Coltrane. If you love what you do, you'll get there, you'll get near there, and something great will happen. Do you feel that you have that intuition with your line of work, with your books, that you kind of feel that you know what to write next? Um, I think I do, but then um, I'm human and I make mistakes and I have to uh, – I'm capable of of taking a wrong turn even at this uh, uh, part of my career. And that's okay because it's good to have a little bit of – to be – a little bit of humility and to understand your limitations. Right. I've seen a lot of very successful people flame out because they're not aware. They think everything that they do is golden, and it's not. So I'm at a much different point now than when I was starting with the 48 Laws of Power. I do think I have more Mm -hmm. of a feel for things, but I'm also aware that I don't have the golden touch, that I have to still put in a lot of effort and still have to think very deeply about things. But when I was writing Mastery, you know, I was uh, on, a, on a big roll, and things were kind of clicking together, and it really did feel like for that book, I had kind of, I kind of had mastered it, you know. Do you feel trapped at all by these topics in the sense that there's a similar theme among all of your books? Yeah. So if, have you ever thought about writing something that's total departure from anything you've written before, and are you, are you worried that if you did do that, that somehow people would think, why is he writing about that? Like, for example, if, I, if I'm doing all this fitness stuff and then I actually wrote a book that's non-fitness related at all, Live Life Aggressively, What Self-Help Gurus Should Be Telling You, and it's kind of a big slam on that industry. So it really doesn't have anything to do with what I'm known for. So at, but uh, but it, it did well because I think there's an underlying tone in that book and everything else I do. But some people – I think the criticism I got from a lot of people was, why is this fitness guy writing this? He's not qualified to do this. You know, just, just talk about training. Just go stick to your bicep curls, Mike, you know, like that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if you've ever been in that kind of situation, either in your own mind or practice. Well, you, there's always that limitation. Of, um, if I, yeah. I wanted to maybe write a, a novel or fiction, right. you know, it, 
it's not going to be very lucrative, and my agent won't be very happy, and I'd <laughs> I'd have to, uh, you know, almost go back to square one a little bit and figure out how I'd want to do that. Uh, so I can't just not like a sandbox where I can just go wake up and do whatever I want and play and bring out my my fire trucks and you know it's it's I have to make a living and I have uh, a certain direction I've taken but yeah you can be trapped in it and I I take the attitude that each book has to be a labor of love so I'm not going to write a book on the art of seduction unless I really love the subject which I happen to really love mm-hmm. so it's related to the 48 laws but it's not. 48 Laws of Power, Part 2. I just can't do that because it has no soul to it. So each book I've chosen to do is something that deep down inside I'm kind of excited about. And, uh, and as I get older and as I get, um, have some more success, I'll be able to do what you're saying and shift gears and write a book. on. I, I'm planning on writing a book, for instance, that deals with a more kind of a the spiritual uh, element of the 50th law. I had a chapter Hmm. on the sublime, which is sort of 50 and myself talking about what it means to think about death itself. Mm -hmm. Um, A book in that vein is something I've been planning for a while. Well, three, four years down the road, I'll be able to do it. And if readers don't like it, then, you know, that's, that's their problem or whatever. I could, I hopefully I'm not, I don't necessarily feel that way, but, I'm doing it for myself. Now, for you, you know, there's a connection between uh, being a trainer and writing a book about living life aggressively because you are not just training people's bodies. The body and the mind are one. There's there's no distinction there. So how people, their attitude towards working out, how they think about it directly is reflected in what happens to them physically. So to you to write a book about how to be aggressive how to think about your life, it's, that's not much of a stretch. And to people who say, well, why are you writing? That's not something you are an expert in. People said that to me. They said, how can you write a book about power, which has a lot, so much to do with psychology? You're not a trained psychologist. You weren't <laughs> in, a, in, a, uh, you know, in high-level politics. And I just say, well, the, the proof is in the pudding. If the book is good and people relate to it and it's true, then that's all that I need. No, no qualifications matter. So if your book on living life aggressively is well written and strong, and the ideas are good, who cares? You know where you came from. So that, that's exactly the way I looked at it. Yeah. That's, the, that's the way I looked. That's the way I looked at my business when I first started because I yeah. called I call it Mahler's aggressive strength, and many people warned me that it's not mainstream enough. It's going to limit your growth. And my attitude was, I don't want to be mainstream. I want to attract a certain kind of person. And also, this is who I am and what I represent. So it's not going to be fun and exciting for me if I'm just trying to be a sellout and be yeah. what everyone else wants me to be rather than my attitude was I'm going to be exactly what I want to be and I'm going to attract people that resonate with that message. And it worked yeah. out. But uh, and then, like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're doing the right thing. Oh, thank you. So I'm curious also, oh, actually, sincere, I'm sorry, did you have a question? Something no, no, go ahead. Actually, you already, yeah, Robert touched on it already. I was about to tell you, like, you know, at this point, you've got people questioning, you know, who are you to write this or talk about this? I'm thinking, you know, selling about 1.2 million copies of the book, there's, there's your answer right there, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, Joe, Rogan, the, Joe Rogan, the comedian, made a really good point. He says the only, lo- the only rule in comedy is it has to be funny. 
So it doesn't matter if it's racist or sexist or offensive or any of that stuff as long as it's funny. But if you right. make a racist joke and it's not funny, now there's a problem. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> and I think, I think that mindset can be carried over to a lot of things. So with your books, Robert, if, if you go on something that's a total departure, it doesn't really matter as long as the book is good. It's only going to be a problem if it's not good or people just think, you know what, this is not a well-written book or what's he talking about yeah. here. As long as it's a mm-hmm. good book, then that's all that matters really. At the end. Exactly. I think, yeah, I think, even I, you know, it's good for me to um, stretch my legs a little bit and, and try something different now and then so it doesn't get stale for me right. as, as well. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I, I've chosen a, a particular subject matter, so it wouldn't be worth it to suddenly, you know, write a book about uh, lingerie or, or how to lose weight. <laughs> so I, I, there are limitations, and I, I've kind of chosen a path that, it, uh, that really does my way of thinking, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, I, I wrote a book on warfare, the 33 strategies of right. war. It was kind of yeah. my version of the art of war. Yeah, yeah. I've never been a soldier. Um, it wasn't. It's a book about strategy. It's not a book about being a, a, a soldier. But I've never been to war. I don't really have that in my family. But I love strategy, and I di- I dived into it really, really deeply, um, and I got. You know, the book got published, and it's used in military schools all around the world. And I got invited to speak at West Point and address the Singapore military and all that. Um, and it's because I I went into the subject with a lot of seriousness and studied it very hard and made it a book that was very true. So people pay too much attention to titles and right. backgrounds, um, I think. Mm. I think one of the things that some entrepreneurs struggle with is they, they're super passionate about something when they first start. And then let's say five or six years into it, they've had a certain level of success. And now all of a sudden, it's starting to feel like a job. It's not as fun as it used to be. But they're afraid now to make that big transition again. They did it once. They took the risk and it paid off. But now it's like, oh, I don't want to go back to that hard place again and try this other thing. And my attitude about that is always, if you don't do that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start backfiring on you, just like when you, when you did a job you didn't like. We see this all the time in our industry is why I'm bringing it up, where people used to be super passionate about teaching their workshops and so forth. And then all of a sudden, people start saying, you know what, I took that guy's course and he didn't look like he was enjoying it at all. It wasn't, he didn't seem passionate. The information right. was okay, but the delivery wasn't there. And it seems like those people know what they need to do but they're not prepared to pull that trigger again, even though they already did it once, so they know they can do it. I mean, my example is that when I started getting tired of certain aspects of my business, I started looking for different challenges. Like now I'm developing my own nutrition supplement line because natural natural hormone optimization has been been a big interest of mine for many years. So now I've kind of put certain parts of my business on, on the back burner or discontinued while I focus on other things. I've been fortunate personally where I've been able to transition at almost the perfect time and just keep going into different interests. But I see so many people that get trapped by their success is the way I look at it. Is they, they took the risk, it paid off, but they don't want to take the risk again. And have you seen that quite a bit? Oh, Good. yeah, sure, yeah. definitely. Um, it's a very common scenario. It depends on the individual and where you are in your in, in your life and how old you are. I mean, if you're in your mid-20s and you've uh, 
built a company uh, over a couple of years that's successful and it's starting to bore you, the best thing is to sell it and try another one. Right. If you're young enough and you're going to now just expand your experience. But if you're in your 30s, maybe you don't want to do that because it's a little riskier. You may have a family. Okay, now you do what you did and you you keep the same business, but you branch out in some way. Or you take on a different role. This guy I know who started his own kind of um, advertising firm um, had all of the he, he was good at hiring all of the right people to do the work for him, and he reached a point where it was like, ah, maybe I've I've done enough. Maybe I sell it. And I said, well, no, don't don't sell it. You're, maybe take on a different role in the company. Now right. be more hands-on when it comes to the actual um, marketing plans that you're working on. Expand your skill base from within this very solid company uh, that you've already established because you're in your mid-30s, and maybe – your impatience is a problem. Um, you, you, you always want something new, and it's not maybe the right thing at that moment in your life. Everybody's different, but right. you're totally right that if, if you're tuning out, if it's becoming routine, if it, people will sense that, and it's going to hurt you in the long run. So somehow you have to keep that entrepreneurial spirit either in selling the business and trying another one or in finding a different role or creating the challenges for yourself, you must constantly be doing that. Yeah, it seems yeah. like 50, 50 Cent, who you, you wrote a great book with, 50 and Law, it seems like he's really good at doing that. And he's a very successful rapper, and then he, he wrote a book with another guy on fitness that's doing very well. He wrote a book with you that's a total departure from his music that's also an excellent product. And then he just seems like a very sharp businessman in general. So he seems to be like a really good example of someone who's used success to create more success. You're expanding, as you know, as you, yeah. as you mentioned, you know, within his field, whether it's something connected to that or outside of that. Because, I mean, he's got, I mean, he did the thing with vitamin water. I mean, he did that with the headphones. So it seems like he's constantly expanding and summarizing. He's not just being so just linear with his career, just like, oh, I'm just going just gonna to just make music, do shows for the rest of my life. Right. Because <laughs> like he can see, again, he can kind of see that this is going to, it's going to get old. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's going to get old. It's not, you know, right now hip hop is not at that point where it's like the Rolling Stones where you can be 70, 80 years old and on the stage <laughs> rocking a mic. You're know? <laughs> <That would not laughs> talking about up in the club and you're 85. I'm like, oh, that's, you're that's not, not a club. nice image. No, no, no that, that's true. We don't see any, we don't see any hip hop guys in their 60s and so forth. Like uh, some of the some of the original creators of hip hop, we don't see them going on a tour anymore. And so I think that's an example of that right there. Yeah. Now, I mean, uh, with, with Fifty Cent, the music industry was in such a, a changing a changing environment when he got in. And as you discussed in his book, and I've heard you talk about this in interviews, where he managed to leverage the fame and attention he got from being a successful artist and put that into other arenas. Now, as an author, are you finding a similar environment? in the publishing industry where maybe you're not making as much off of book sales as you used to. And now you have to figure out how to take your name and leverage, leverage it in other ways. Well, it's happening, but um, I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate enough that I, I don't have to really worry about that. I could live comfortably just with books, but right. um, there's always the worry that the publishing industry is 
is going a little bit in a different direction, and, and maybe the money won't be as good as it used to be. So I have options. I do speaking engagements, and I can uh, pursue that more aggressively and make a lot of money on that if I wanted to, or other opportunities that people have come to me with, um, and also Hollywood and going into turning some books into into television or whatever, which is, is which is happening. So um, I'm fortunate in that I have these options that I could go in uh, different directions right. based on, on what I've created. And that's sort of a good path, a, a model for a lot of people. I mean, it's what 50 did. Uh, but you can do on a smaller scale. If you create something really powerful and unique um, that reflects you, and it's, it's not something anybody else is doing, it ends up doing the same thing. It gives you all of these options now where you can go off in different directions. In, in Mastery, I have the story of this woman, Yoki Matsuoka, who yeah. is not, yeah. goes into computer, I'm sorry, robotics engineering, robotics, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's heavy science, and she's in her mid or late 30s, and she doesn't want to be doing prosthetic robotic limbs her whole life, and suddenly she's now being recruited by Google and Silicon Valley to develop technology that has that has the smartness that is thinking like she did with with robotics. Oh, now she can transfer that skill to a totally different um, environment. Uh, you know, lots of people who end up doing something similar to that. Once you've created something different, unique that reflects you. You have all of these options. Freddie Roach, she doesn't maybe want to do boxing his whole life. Now he can do different forms of martial arts, and he can be a trainer for that as well. And he can. Oh really yeah. Be yeah. He can he's uh, he's very well known in the like both Sincere and I are huge MMA fans, and yeah. he's he works with a lot of MMA fighters. In fact, there's yeah. a couple of guys fighting this weekend that he's working with, and he's yeah. he's in high demand. So a guy like that is never going to have to worry about yeah, he's where the next check. He's also working with basketball players like Andrew okay, Klein or other higher name players than that uh, on footwork. So um, once you get right. to that point, um, man, the world opens up and you can you can keep finding the new challenges because the world always is looking for those who've got like unusual skills. Well, what, what do you think some people, I, I mean, I, I know plenty of people that are, are super passionate about, let's say, what I'm doing, and they're, they're always reading books on training, they're always talking about it, yet they just won't pull the trigger when it comes to jumping into business. They always have a reason. Oh, I need to take a class on marketing. Oh, I need to make a little bit more money, then I'll jump in. Oh, when this happens, then I'll do it. And I look at all those things as just delaying tactics. They're just delaying the inevitable action phase. But I, I'm curious what your take is on why people like that just, they, they, it's obvious they're into it, but they just won't pull the trigger and get started. Well, it's not complicated. It's not rocket science. They're afraid, and uh, right. it really right. comes down to uh, their comfort zone. Um, yeah. Are they, it's easy to have ideas and to talk to your friends about it right. and criticize other people for doing something. <laughs> yeah. The moment you stick your neck out and start a business of whatever, yeah. Uh, your neck is on the line, and you have nobody else you really can blame. Um, and it's a lot of work, and you're um, you're responsible financially, probably for what's going to happen. So it's understandable that people would feel fear. 
Um, but once again, it's a and and I felt it, and we've all felt it. You right. you probably had it as well. Sure. Sure. The the 50th law is a book about overcoming fear. But the point I make in it, or the 50 and I make in it, I'm sorry, is that uh, the worst people are those who imagine they don't have fear. You have to uh, sense it, feel it, and then overcome it. So everybody, Napoleon Bonaparte or Steve Jobs, whomever, they are they feel the same fear that you feel before starting it. They just overcome it. You have to overcome it. And it depends on who you are. Uh, some people are, are very emotional-based, and you can't really reason with them. But if you are someone whose thinking is an important part of who you are, you have to make this calculation that um, time is a factor. And the longer that you wait, the worse your situation becomes. Right. Uh, you're you're going to get older and you become more fearful as you get older. You want to learn as much as possible when you're in your 20s uh, or early 30s. You want to embrace failure. If you fail, you've had an incredible education. You know, going bankrupt, it's not the worst thing in life. You can borrow money yeah. from someone else. If you've learned the right lessons, that money, people will bankroll you for something else because You've demonstrated at least some guts. You'll, you'll, you'll get you'll land on your feet again. So you have to make these rational, um, take these rational considerations that it's not as bad as you think. That right. the worst thing that you can do is is never to have started your business. That's the worst form of failure. Let's say you have an idea for starting a a new kind of fitness training system that you've been you know will work, and you never do it. Well, you failed. Right, mm-hmm. but if you tried it and you failed, you learned a, a hell of a lot in the process. So you'll make your next venture good. That kind of failure is healthy, but the failure of never trying something is not only the fact that you didn't learn anything; it depresses the hell out of you. It lowers yeah. your self-esteem. Yeah. It makes it harder to get on your feet. You've got to make a real. You've got to have a real hard slap in the face and realize that time is ticking. And the longer you wait, the worse things will get for you personally and intellectually. So, you know, that, that's how I tell people who have that fear. Yeah, I think it goes right back to the intense realism that is discussed so much in your yep. book. I, I often look at it as, as a simple response as well. I, to me, it's just, it's just a sign that someone's just, they just don't want to do it. Because when, when you want to do something, yeah, you have all those fears in the back of your mind and so forth, but you just plow through anyway. So, I mean, it's, you either want to do something or you don't. And if you just keep coming up with excuses for why you can't get started, then maybe you didn't really want to do it in the first place. And maybe that's the problem. Right. Now, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's very true, but, but I do think that um, there's a fine line. And there are going to be there are a lot of people who end up trying that business who were actually afraid, uh, uh-huh. who were hesitant. And I think, you know, I was hesitant to write books. I'm sure whatever business, with your business, there were moments of doubt. Oh, sure, so, still are. <laughs> there still are. So yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not this way or the other. It's not people right. are fearless or, fear, or fearful. Everybody has fear, and it's a tough world out there. Uh, it's will you reach that point in which you're so desperate that you realize that the risk is worth it? So 
you're right, a lot of people don't want to do it, but then there's the other point that they haven't reached that level of desperation yet. Right. They have a fallback. They have right. a cushy job with a paycheck, and that's what's keeping them from it. If they quit the job and, they had, and they're staring over the cliff's edge, maybe they'll make the leap because they have no other choices. So sometimes it's also your circumstances. Of course, you can control that. You could leave that job or whatever. Right, right. But, um, you know, a lot of people n- never get to that point where they're at the precipice and they have to make a real hard life choice. They're, they're, they're fudging it. So, um, yeah. And there are ways to, to push you into that decision, and I coach people and help people get there. I think anybody, almost anybody, can be made to do their idea, can, can realize it if they're made to understand the consequences of waiting. So, that's a, that's a pretty good point. I'm oh, sorry, go, so go ahead. No, I just think you have to get to that point where you just, if, if you heard it before, you got to get to that point where you're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or yeah. uh, as Eric Thomas says, um, he's really popular on YouTube, you know, you got to want it as much as you want to breathe. So yeah. what's the point? Like, one thing about it, I don't think anyone's going to sit there and contemplate breathing every day. <laughs> and if somebody's sitting there choking you or you're underwater, you know, my thing is you're going to grasp and try to get out of that water and try to breathe any way possible. And right. I think at that point, you know, so many people are not at that point where they feel like they're out of breath. And I think that's usually what some of the greatest innovations have ever happened. Somebody just got to the point where it just seems like they just cannot breathe in that same environment what the current system was like anymore. And it's like somebody's got to do something or bring this to the table for people because this is crap or this way is not working anymore. Or, you know, my idea actually make, make things a little bit better for folks. So it needs to get yeah. to that point. And a lot of times people are not there yet. So it just yeah. it takes something. It takes something to shake them up and like, okay, enough is enough. Well, I think the recession had an effect on a lot of people. There was a phenomenon of, of a lot of people suddenly became entrepreneurs yeah. after they got laid yeah. off. Oh, yeah. Uh, Quite a few. There's an example oh, here in, yeah. Las Vegas, where, in Las Vegas where I live. There were some ladies who got laid off, and they ended up starting a cupcake factory. Or a cupcake oh, yeah, store, yeah. Whole thing. And that one branch was so successful, it turned into several in no time, and, and they're raking it in. So they're making way more than they ever did in the job they got fired from. So in a yeah. lot of ways, I'll start going. Fired can be a blessing. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. But for me, it was. I think I would have. I think I would have been in that category you just mentioned, where you kind of just drag it along, because that's where I was. I was working a job. I was making good money. It was actually the first job I ever had where I was making really good money, and I didn't like it. But it just didn't seem like a logical step to just quit it and go into something and start from zero. So I, I kept on trying to do it on the side, the fitness business that is. And you're not really going to make anything big or grand on the side. That's always what I tell people, is that if you no, have some no, full-time job. Right. And, an illusion. Yeah, so whenever I see I have, I have two friends here in Vegas where both are always talking about how I'm just going to, I'm going to keep my full-time job, and then I'm just going to build this up on the side. No, and, no. and it sounds like a nice theory, right? It's like, well, I'm just going to gradually build this up, and then when that matches my job income, then I'll switch over. And it never no, no, works, no. ever. It never works. That so I think you have to have that that burn your bridges feeling, and this is it. This is how I'm going to do it, and that's it. I'm not going to keep my day job, or or, or you have to no. blast yourself out your, of that comfort zone. It needs your focus. It's just like if you plant something, man, dude, you got to like diligently, you know, water that that section and till that section and, and do all that in order for that plant to grow. You just can't go drop a seed in the ground and walk away like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> It'll be well, here. The, I mean, the other off, off, um, alternative, and I 
talk about it in other books, is you know maybe you're not in a position to quit your job. Maybe you're 30 years old and you're married and you got a couple of kids and you're working a job that you don't really like, but you're not in, you don't have the luxury of of quitting. Then that's a, there are quite a few people like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the difference is, are you going to just wallow in that kind of job that's helping you just get by um, and not think about the future, or are you going to do something else? So let's say you, you want to start your own business, but you can't quit this fast food job. Uh, you, then you come up with a plan. In two years, I am going to quit. And in those two years, I'm going to go take this class at school. I'm going to study and read. I'm going to spend the off hours that I have making a plan about the business. I'm going to interview people, talk to do, and, and just that one decision that you now have a plan and that you're going to give yourself this time limit will completely alter the game. Instead of having a crap job that you're stuck in for the rest of your life, that job is just simply a bridge to help you get to this point where you'll be able to do something else. So you're being rational and reasonable. You have, you're still supporting your family, but you're, not, you're going to build that bridge to the, to the bigger dream that you have. You know, there are people, everyone's in a different situation. So some right. people have to follow that path, and it's, it's fine. But to have no sense of where you're going, um, to me, that's like the worst, worst circumstance to be in in life. So. Yeah, and it gets worse every decade of life. If you're in your 30s, <laughs> you're just crappy. If you're in your 40s, it's like becoming, it's almost suicidal at that point. Right. You're so, you're looking back like, dude, what have I done with my life? You know, where, where am I? Have you missed so much time? But it's not like you yeah. can't still fix it. I think that's I think that's a problem a lot of folks get into. They get to like in their 40s and their 50s, and they haven't necessarily followed their passion or even understood what their passion was. But when they discover, like, well, now it's too late. And I think they feel like you know there's no time. But I mean, with all this technology that we have, there's it's time. <laughs> the time's still there. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're, I've talked to people who are in their 40s and 50s, and there there are shifts that you can make. You're not going to suddenly quit your accounting job and become a rock star. You know, there's, there's, there's reasons that you take, but, um, but you can quit your job as an accountant and start doing something else that does appeal to you more, and you have built up skills that you're not going to just completely abandon. Mm-hmm. So you make a shift. You don't make a radical change. You know, maybe when you're, by the time you're in your 60s, it's probably getting a little too late. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, really a, it's really how you feel and, and, and how, you know, how desperate you are. I have a chapter in the war book that I always recommend people to read. It's called, I call it Death Ground. It sort of comes from Sun Tzu and the ideas that in military they would put an, uh, a, a general would deliberately put an army with its back the ocean or to a, a mountain, right. knowing that there was no way to retreat, and mm-hmm. so that they would fight like hell because they couldn't possibly retreat. And that's you know, and that's the same thing with uh, Cortez when he burnt the ships when they mm-hmm. landed in in Mexico, and he burnt the ships or he sunk the ships um, so that they couldn't possibly return to Cuba, so that they would fight like hell to to conquer Mexico. Um, when you don't feel that necessity, you just don't do things. Right. You just right. have no energy. You have no drive. Your spirit isn't concentrated. You spend ten hours. What could do, you could do in two hours? Yeah. So you've got to create <laughs> that, that ground feeling. You've got to create that sense of 
desperation, which could be quitting your job or giving yourself a deadline or whatever it is. That's just human nature, and you have to somehow create that sense of urgency in your life. Yeah, I really think you need pressure to be successful. So when the pressure is on, you can embrace that, and that's going to bring yeah. out the best of you. But, but when you wake up and you're going, eh, you know, I don't really need to get that done today. I'm just going to kick back, watch some moronic TV shows for a while, and see what goes right. on. And, and one of the things that's funny that I dealt with with my business is, is I started developing some success, success especially with passive income, selling videos, e-books, things like that. It, was, it became a little bit it, you, you started losing that intensity a little bit each day, meaning that you would wake up. Like before I developed that, I would wake up and say, okay, I need to make things happen today and push it hard. Every day something had to happen to further my business. But when the passive income started coming in, I would notice that in the back of my mind, I would wake up and say, and look at how much I made while I was sleeping and say, you know what? I don't really need to do that much today. I think I'll just go to the beach and kick back yeah. for a little bit. And that was okay for a while because I had worked hard. It was okay to take a breather. But then you had to start putting yourself back in the pressure zone. So I, I took all this money I'd made and I put it into the next project, which is what I'm doing now, my nutrition supplement business. So uh-huh. now, now, now that all my money is into that, you wake up going, okay, I, I just put a ton of money into that. So you better get some stuff done today. And it, it's, it's, right. it's, it's not stressful, actually. It's actually really exciting because it makes yeah. me wake up with that purpose again. And that's what I always try to encourage people is that, yeah, there's, that's, that's stress. That pressure can be really exciting, really exhilarating as well, because now I feel alive again with my business. While before it was, I was starting to fall into that coasting mode, where it's uh-huh. like I don't really need to do that much because it's, it's just going to come in. And but the problem with that attitude, though, is that eventually it's not going to come in if you just kick back forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to start being a little bit less. But now that I've kind of pushed into another frontier. That excitement yeah. is back, and it's and it's it's paying off because that that same work ethic, which built phase one of my career, is now building this right. phase. Well, it sounds like you're very smart. You're doing the right things. You've got good instincts. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. it. And I, I tell you what, your books have been a great help, and uh, we really appreciate your time again, Robert. It's, Definitely, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And we know you're oh. super busy. So uh, I'm going to recommend that everyone go to Amazon.com, take a look at, check out Robert Greene's books, especially Mastery, 50th Law, Art of Seduction. Really, you can't go wrong with any of his books. I also have right. them in Audible.com in my iPhone. So yeah, same often, here. often I'm driving around listening to your books if I'm not oh, reading them good. at home. I know a lot of people just don't like reading that much, and they're, they're busy, and they have a lot of dead time. So if you're that kind of person where maybe you're stuck on the subway, you're flying a lot, you're in traffic all the time, take advantage of that time. Put a bunch of Robert's books in audible.com, and you're going to be glad you did because now all of a sudden that time is being utilized in a productive manner. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool because you go on Audible, you actually hear a sample. Trust me, you just, if you listen to just a sample, you're going to get hooked. And then next thing you know, you're going to end up filling up your wish list with all the books. <laughs> oh. You know, and it's, that's what I've done. But the thing is, I don't want to just get them all at once and try to listen to them all at once. I actually, <laughs> um, these books are so good. It's like I want to give focus to each one individually. Uh-huh. So I don't want to move to the next one until I've done. Like right now, I'm like Mike's reading The 50th Law, and I had just purchased it when Mike brought it up. And I, in the, now, uh, on a road trip, I listened to a couple chapters, but I was like, no, but right now I'm listening to Mastery, and I want to stick with that, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So, but now I'm really, like, focusing on Mastery so I can also move on to the 50th Law as well. But 
like I said, I'm loving mastery just as much from the couple chapters I heard from 50th Law, and I just feel like that. When you hear that sample, I mean, when I heard the sample that they had on Audible for the 50th Law, I'm like, okay. Not that I. One thing about it, when Mike gives me a suggestion, you know, he he doesn't just suggest anything. So usually he's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. So, but when I heard the sample of it that they had on Audible.com, I was like, I say, oh yeah, definitely. And the main reason why is I really felt like, especially for like my kids. You know, my son, he's deep in hip-hop culture. He loves 50, uh-huh. especially, he loves 50 more as an entrepreneur than an artist. So yeah. I was like, okay, this will be, this is a good little bonding moment right here for the both of us. So, uh-huh. you know, and, and I played some, you know, I was, we were on a road trip, and I was telling Mike about this a couple of weeks ago, and just playing, like, those few chapters during a couple hours, we were trapped in the car together. Oh, he turned off his, his phone. He was listening to his own music at first, but when he heard just wow. you and 50 talking, he was like, okay, who is this again? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Rob Green. And wow, that's like, one of the best things I've ever heard. Of. That's that's great, man. I really oh, man, he's excited. I mean, for an 18-year-old really to get excited like that, yeah, he's that like, means a lot. Oh yeah, these days because they're so distracted by so many other oh, things. Yeah. But he was just like, oh, what what else has he written? And then I started saying some of the titles of the other books. I said, and by the way, since you love hip hop so much, let me tell you about the 48 Laws of Power and how many of you know some of your favorite artists have been influenced by that book. I said, yeah, but yeah. these are not just the common everyday rap. I'm talking about people who are very success, successful, like yeah. Jay-Z, you know, Kanye, and guys like that who are not just performers, but these are like businessmen in this industry and beyond this industry. And so yeah. that got him excited. So I was wow. happy about that. Well, I'm well, happy I mean, too. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. That's why I feel your books are so important because I, I don't feel that a lot of kids are dumb. I just feel that what they're being taught is so boring and it doesn't have any application often in their mind of where it's useful right, that they just yeah. shut off. But when they, when I, because I've had that same experience that Sincere's talking about. I've actually recommended your books and stuff to people between 18 and 21 and yeah. they get hooked. I mean, they can't <laughs> stop listening. They can't stop reading. So, wow. I mean, it's, I, I think I think you have material that really resonates with a variety of age groups, but I, yeah. I think people people want to know how to become better versions of themselves. And your I writing is very authentic. It's not like you're trying to like, you know, just try to downplay it to try to speak their language and try to make right, them feel exactly. comfortable or anything like. That. It's not insulting the way you write. You're still yeah. writing in your own voice, and yeah. and, and I think that's probably what got my son's attention. It's like, this, okay, here's not a guy. He's not on this. He's not in this book trying to speak street talk or anything like that. It's like, you know, like, why, why did you have to even do that? Because, I mean, why would you have to do that when you had 50 right there? And even 50 wasn't even going there, you know? Yeah. It's like, so, and I think the authenticity is what I think resonates with so many people. You're not trying to be something that you're not. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is all, this is all music to my ears, man. Thank you. Oh, uh, final, final question I have for you, then we'll, yep. we'll let you go. I know you got to go, is... With, with the way the landscape has changed now for authors, have you ever thought about just being a self-published author, just doing everything on your own completely, being totally self-reliant like uh, well, I know, Fox in your book? I know um, other writers. Have, uh, there's, there's David Mamet, the famous playwright, who had a book out, and he, he got so unhappy with how the big publisher was marketing it, he decided to self-publish right. his own book. Mm-hmm. and. Um, the the problem is that uh, it, it can be a lot of work. Um, you know, like the, the big publishers, publishing houses, uh, have teams of people that can just simply do things for you. It's whether right. can you trust them? Are they doing a good enough job? I right. don't want to be in the position at my age and where I am to have <laughs> to do, you know, three different jobs that I could used to let the publishers do. Right. Um, 
So uh, it might be a calculation that I'll make in the future. I think my next book is The Testing Ground. Right. Do, do I like what's, how they handle it in this new environment? Mm-hmm. And if I don't, uh, that seventh book of mine, I very well might try. I'm open to anything that works, and uh, my eyes are open. So I'm not going to do it for my next book, the one I'm working on right now, but the one after that, if I'm not happy with how this turned out, I, I might consider it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, basically, if you're happy in the situation you're in, then there's no reason to change that well, model. I'm not totally happy. I think <laughs> that, uh, that a lot of publishers are very behind the times. They don't understand right, right. the new environment, yeah. and they make mistakes, and then they take a huge percentage of, of the money. So I'm not totally happy, uh, so I'm, 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 th- I'm thinking about it. Because I, I, I'm a big music fan, too, and I look at a lot of bands that have great music, but they always complain that the record label's not behind them, it's not helping them yeah. on tour, it's not helping them promoting. And these yeah. are usually young guys in their 20s. And then I always think, just having done everything with my business myself, I always think, well, why don't you guys learn how to market stuff your own, just like Gene Simmons did with Kiss. And he took charge of all of that stuff. And that's one of the reasons why they were so successful early on. Yeah, and but then, it's, just, uh, it's just at what age are you at? I mean, if I right. were in my 20s or 30s, I probably would go ahead and try it and, and make more money and put all that energy into it. But right. at my age now, I'm also doing other things, like I said, the speaking engagements and the Hollywood thing. Right. It, it might mm-hmm. just be too much of a time burden. So I make, sure. I'll make the calculation of soon enough whether it's worth it for me to do that as well. And I know people um, who could do it for me, people who have started very small presses who would engage with me, who have come to me with that, with that uh, offer. Right. Uh, so I'm thinking about it. I just, I just have to consider the time element because time is as important as the money to me. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. And that was one thing that was important with my business is that I create a lot of that passive income so that I, I don't have to just wake up and hit the floors every day and get stuck in that grind. So I understand right. that completely. Is right, there anything right. you would like to plug, Robert? Is there a website or anything else you'd like no, to plug? No, I mean, there's, my website is, is powerseductionandwar.com. The and is, is spelled out, so powerseductionandwar.com. Okay. There's a link there to the, the new site for mastery and all the information, all the books that you'll need. And then if you go to YouTube, you can see uh, uh, I have a lot of uh, videos out there. And interviews. Oh, yeah, you have a ton. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing I recommend to people. If you're not, if you're not someone who's prepared to spend any money <laughs> and just go to, go to YouTube and there's more lectures. I think I spent a week one time just watching a lot of your lectures and listening oh, to stuff. So there's a ton, ton of good information on YouTube as well. Uh, well, thank you so much. We really appreciate we it. We really appreciate oh, it. No, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Sorry it took a couple extra days to get to it, but I have oh, no problem. Great no worries. Thank you. Yeah. Real pleasure having you on. Thanks again. Okay. Well, thank you both of you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take, take care. care. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And that's Robert Greene, author, again, of 48 Laws of Power, 50th Law. Mastery. Uh, yeah, Mastery, The Artist Seduction, 33 Strategies of War. I mean, how could you not want to check out titles like that? I know. It sounds like a great box set of movies that you miss out on. <laughs> even, <laughs> like, dude, how did I miss that movie? <laughs> you know? even, even the website is like powerseductionandwar.com. It's like, you know, <laughs> 
if you're not if you're if you don't have some inclining to go over there and check that out right now, then I mean you may not have a pulse. You might want to check your pulse right now and <laughs> see if you're even alive. But you know, artist seduction. I mean, if someone told me that title, I'd be like, huh, I got to oh. see what that's about. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Mastery. Yeah, I want to see what that's about. Thirty-eight to thirty-three strategies of war. As a huge fan of the art of war. In the Book yeah, of Five exactly. Rings, I'm surprised I haven't read that yet. Uh, our friend Christopher Reed brought it up when I said that we're going to have Robert on the show on Facebook. And I was yeah. like, how, how did I miss that book? I need to go buy that right now. Oh, I, I have and I have that one. I bought that one on Audible as well. So that one's, yeah. that one's on my phone and ready to go after the 50th Law. You know, one, that'll be 50th Law is my next book after Mastery. Then, you know, the 33 Laws of War, that's, that's next. <laughs> but so, and, and, it's, and it's so crazy that... Um, you know, when you look at just some of the critics that like talked about like um, the 48 laws, the 48 laws of power, and like, oh, how can you put this book out? Whatever. It's like you guys brought up, man. It's just, it's not so much that you would use these laws that he brought up against people, you know, in a negative way, but it's also a good way to be aware when someone is using it, you know, toward you. A lot of times people don't even know they're doing it. Some people just like just natural born sociopaths and don't even realize it. <laughs> but, you know, you can kind of prepare yourself for that. And then it's just like I learned that just during like during debate in college, right. which pretty much is the standard before you even think about going to law school or anything like that. One thing about a good attorney, he's already going to before you even ask the question when he's interrogating you, when you have you on the stand, he already knows what your answer is going to be. Right. And he already has something prepared as a rebuttal to that answer. They're always five or six steps ahead of you. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're trying to manipulate you. A lot of times you manipulate yourself. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're Kim Blackburn, you manipulate yourself every night. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and now was, our weekly was, bag on Kim that Blackburn. Was, that, was about perfect, that, was, that was like the best setup ever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, you and I are really good at setting each other up on these shows like that. Like when I brought up, when I brought up that whole anal bleaching business a couple episodes ago, if you took it and ran with it like a champ, man. You know, anyone else would be like, oh, let's change the Trump, let's, let's change the subject, or ho, oh, oh, ho, what was that all about? Like, you just took that and, you just like, took oh, that and ran with it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's when you know you have good synergy with the host, with your co-host. <laughs> one guy brings up one thing, and the other guy just runs right, right with it without hesitation. <laughs> oh, man. No, but I mean, the thing that Robert brought up that I really like is that you don't, you don't want to be this naive person and think no. that there's no conflict in life. I mean, ideally, you want to create a – I like to create win-win situations, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want, I want to do business with people I like. Like, what, like when you and I do a workshop – I want it to be a win-win situation, not something where I'm going, well, let me, let me screw over Sincere as much as he's willing to take on this so that I have the most advantage out of this. I mean, right. That's not the way I look at it because we're friends, and also that's not, that's not the way I want to run business. But there, there's a lot of times in life where you're going to have to use certain strategies to get through it and untaint it. I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to use some level of deception. You're going to have to use certain manipulation techniques. And if you don't, you're just going to get mauled right over. Well, I mean, look, we're just, in an industry full of it. We're in yeah, an industry exactly. full of deception, but it's not always bad deception. Do you understand if we just – come on, Mike, let's be honest. Just to sit there and tell someone who's coming to you like, how can I get, how can I get rid of this, this belly? Well, if you know, first of all, it's real simple. All you have to do is just 
eat clean food full of nutrients and, you know, and actually like work out. No, 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 no. But how can I get rid of it now? <laughs> so here's <laughs> like, the deal. Well, you know, now, naturally, someone's going to say, well, I don't even want to deal with people like that. But at the end of the day, just about every client you have is going to at some point, at some degree, is going to be like that. Even the ones that are manipulating you to make you think they're not thinking like that. Right. Okay. No, They're like, true. um, yeah, whatever you tell me to do, man, I'm ready to do it. And I'm just ready for a change. A lot of times they're not ready to do everything you tell them to do, but they want to work with you. And they feel like, well, I got to say that because I've seen this guy online. I know, you know, pretty much I've read his, his stuff. I know the kind of language that he speaks. If I come in kind of just, you know, being whiny or whatever, he's not going to want to work with me, but I really want to work with him. So let me just, let me play, play up to him and play his game and speak his language. But that's a form of manipulation from a client standpoint. They don't even think about it that way. They're trying to get something that they want. They want to work with us. So they're going to do what they can to work with us. They're going to manipulate the situation. <laughs> so, and, but guess what? If we work with them and they're actually like, hey, they're doing the things that we're asking them to do and showing them what to do or whatever, and it works out for both. It was a win-win situation. And guess what? We're not offended from the fact that you manipulated us. Right. <laughs> you know, so my thing no, is just, don't take it personally. It's just like we're all, and he, as human beings, we're all manipulating some situation because that's, that's the prize of having the highest form of intelligence on earth. Okay. Yeah. And, and, a, and a good, a good teacher or instructor. I mean, anyone who's ever taken a jujitsu class or had a strength coach work with them or anything. I mean, a good teacher is going to manipulate you for your best interest. Exactly. Sometimes that's, they're going to, they're going to read you and realize, you know what, I'm going to have to frame it just like this in order to get Mike to respond the way he should. Because right. if, I, if, I, if I say it this way, he's going to respond this way, and it's not going to work. So, I mean, like anyone who's ever been in a negotiating situation, you realize that the way you talk to one person is not going to be the way you talk to every single person you ever deal with. There's different oh, yeah. strategies that work with different people. So it, it, it goes back to just not being naive and thinking that, you know what, I'm just going to make the world the way I want it to be, and that's that. You know, that's, that's just not going to work. So you have to right. kind of look at what are, you, what are you trying to achieve, and then what are you prepared to do to achieve that, and what do you need to know to pull it off? Right. And I think I, now there, there's definitely certain laws, and we, didn't, you know, we only had an hour with Robert. We didn't, he's a busy guy. We don't, we don't want to keep him on for four hours, but – I would I'd love to try to get him back again down the road and come up and talk about a few more things because as I'm reading the 48 laws of power, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are really distasteful. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. I'm not, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, he's being distasteful by writing about, it. I like the fact that he's being perfectly honest and saying, look, this is what people have done to be really powerful. Right. I'm just going <laughs> to say it the way it is rather than, you know, say how I think it should be. I really, res- I, I appreciate that. But one, for example, one of the laws talks about how, you know, promise people fast results rather than telling them how long it's how long it's really going to take. And I wow, feel that I, I've never heard that one before. Yeah, you know I forget. I, I can't. I can't believe they wouldn't even use that in the fitness industry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, I mean, we, I, I mean, we, we get bombarded with that so much in our industry, right? Like every late night infomercial with a fitness product does that. It's so easy. Ten minutes a day. 30 days, have Just this, press that, play. So Just press play. Now, now, anyone with half a brain knows these guys are full of shit, right? So, I mean, it, it's basically your fault, frankly, when you fall for it. Because if you even have three brain cells you can put together, <laughs> you're going to realize that you're not going to go from being a fat fuck to being a rep in 30 days, working out 10 minutes. Or in 90 days. 
my joint mobility session in the morning takes more than 10 minutes, all right? It takes, exactly. me, it, takes, it takes me more than 10 minutes just to get going in my workout to get to the point where the real money is about to happen, all right? So, I mean, this whole 10 minutes. So, we, we know it's all bullshit, but it, it seems like one of the 48 laws of power is, yeah, just go ahead and use that bullshit anyway because that's how you sell a product. So, I mean, that's an example of something where – it's good to be aware of it so you don't fall for it, but I wouldn't want to use that law myself. You know, that's not the way I want to run my business. And No, not at all, it, because guess now, what? That's going to be very short-lived. Eventually, yeah, I, I just eventually feel people are going to get fed up, and they're going to see through your bull crap, and they're going to yeah. be like, you know what? This dude, and guess what? It's going to take just one. You know, it's so funny. I was sitting there watching. Um, there's a show that was on um, ABC called The Lookout. Basically, right. look out for just different ways you can get scammed or whatever else. And the reason why I recorded is because I happened to see they were um, they were actually talking about Kevin Trudeau, okay? And so <laughs> just talking about all the the mess that he's been into, and which with the whole Kevin Trudeau situation, in my opinion, there's two sides to this. I think Kevin Trudeau has not done anything any differently than someone like Tony Robbins, and I know some people are gonna be pissed when I say this, but Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, any of these guys. You know, they're all pretty much in the same field of right. making people who are too afraid to pull the trigger use the, the right language for those, that group of people to make them get off their butt and listen to what they have to say and feel good about themselves. They're no different than, I mean, Trudeau is no different than most of the people in the fitness industry. Some of the same people that say, oh, that dude's a fraud. These are people also being frauds in our industry. You know, they're, they're promising this, a 60-day challenge to do this and this. Or all you need is a kettlebell just to do this, this, and this. You don't have to use anything else, you know, and selling the same BS. But my thing is, so, yeah, some of the things that he said wasn't necessarily on the up and up. But, again, why, my thing is, you know, the government went after him because I feel Kevin made the mistake of actually bringing the government up too much in these infomercials. So he was pointing out all, all the promises and fraud and all the crap that, and hidden you know, truths or whatever that the government was doing and hiding information from people that they can have access to. So that's the problem. It's like the, the reason why the other people I mentioned probably don't get in trouble with them is because they're not bringing the government into this. So, so one thing about it, don't forget, the government's got unlimited resources to bring you down or make you disappear. <laughs> so, you, so you just got to kind of play, you know, play the game right or whatever. So it was just interesting watching, you know, that that segment. I never even heard of this show, and I just happened to just stumble across that, and I was like, oh, this will be interesting. And it, it was a, it was interesting. And I'm like I said, I know people watch it one side, like, yeah, that dude, he duped a lot of people. Honestly, people are gonna be duped as far as you let them dupe them. <laughs> right, right, right. And I don't think people want to admit that. He's yeah. like, I mean, it's just like even goes back to Guyana, you know, and Jim Jones. I mean, come on. I mean, or David Koresh or anyone. It's just like there is something lacking. There is some kind of fear that's lacking in people's lives where they're not taking control of their lives. And they want to hand that over to someone. Just like a lot of these people that watch these late night infomercials, they're putting, they would rather hand their health over to, you know, these, these people popping out these DVDs, promising all these promises in 30 days or less or whatever, or you eat their packaged meals and it's going to make you look like this, this spray tan, overly, overly spray tan chick, you know, that they have in the commercials and all that stuff. They're, these people are willing to hand over this stuff out of fear. And that's what it comes down to. No matter what industry or who we're talking about here, it's, it's all this stuff happens out of fear when people are afraid to take control and take things in, you know, in their own matter, you know, in their own hands. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I don't want people to think that, oh, I don't want to buy this book because it sounds like it's recommending underhanded advice. It's not, it's not, it's not the author recommending necessarily. No, not anything. at all. He's, he's telling you, like, look, I've studied 
all of these powerful people throughout the history of humankind, and these are the common threads that have been used over and over again. So which, which laws you want to apply is up to you, but you should be aware of all of them because, believe me, people are going to try using them on you. It happens to all of us. I mean, I can, I, can, I, I can think of a circumstance where pretty much every single one of those laws I've come across before, someone yeah, using it to sure. some degree. I mean, law number seven, take, take credit for other people's work. All right, we've all had that happen to us where we do something and someone above us tries to take credit for it. That used to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I had a guy try to take credit for every success I ever had at a certain job, internet company I worked for. And then whenever anything went wrong, you know, of course, well, you I'll, got credit for that. Yeah, exactly. That, 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 you know, then, I, then I got all the credit in the world. All right. So, and trust that goes me, everyone up. listening right now, they've been, they've been you in that situation. Oh, yeah. Or they may have been that guy that took credit you know, in that situation. And the thing is, taking it long, just admitting that is like, oh, yeah, I've done that. Okay, you've done it. Are you still doing it? If you're still doing it, you know it's messed up. Yeah. You know it's screwed up. No, it's so, totally screwed up. And fix then it. Watch, watch Make a choice said. to fix it or just yeah. continue to live in the misery of knowing that you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and then Law 26 is, is right in line with that. Utilize scapegoats so that other people take the blame for your mistakes. I mean, every right. politician we've had – since I've been alive, I can think of has done that. And how many people do we all know who always want to delegate that mistake to someone else? Like, well, it's so-and-so's problem. That's why it happened. And then, but the one law that made me think of a lot of the people in our industry, honestly, is law number 11. And this is from the 48 laws of, of, master, of power, rather, mm-hmm. is law number 11, keep people dependent on you. And we see so yeah, many and it's funny. We talked about that a yeah, few yeah, shows yeah. ago. You know, the yeah. whole idea is like, you know, empower your clients to the fact that, Working with you becomes a choice, right? You know, not something that they have to do, but something that they want to do. So, but so but again, this comes back down to fear because these people in our industry that want to keep these clients dependent on them, they are so afraid that if they lose that client, they're going to lose money and they're not going to get any new clients. Exactly. Exactly. But my thing is, hey, this client is just coming to you just out of their own free will now, and they've they've reached one goal that they came to you with, and now they have these different goals or whatever else. But they feel like in order this is the guy I want to work with to go to these new goals that I've set. And I don't have to be with him, but this is the guy I choose. Guess what? Other people are going to pick up on that. They're going to tell their other friends about that. Or other people are going to notice that from the outside looking in. If you post them, you know, success stories or something like that, other people are going to see like, okay, obviously this guy must be, he can back up the talk of, we you know, how good he is at what he does. I want to work with him too. This is what happens. But when you sit there and try to be a, a, just a hoarder, <laughs> you know, of, the, of just one or two or three different people, then, dude, you're not opening the door f- to expand your business or just, hell, even your reputation. <laughs> so, again, it comes back down to fear. Well, I mean, it, and it, it, the funny thing is, is that, I mean, it, I, I'm all about empowering people as well. And the, and, the, and the reality is most of the time when I have an online client where it's like, look, you know, you've been working with me long enough. You know what to do now. It's time for you to go. They don't want to go. They're like, well, I want to stick around and do this. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like when, you, when, you, when you're desperate to hold on to people, they're more likely to run away. But when you say, look, it's time for you to go, they're going to want to stick around. Oh, yeah, That's people don't like rejection, man. <laughs> people don't like rejection, and people don't like desperation. Anytime you come up desperate, you're going to lose, no matter what it is, whether it's asking a girl out for a date or trying to sell your car, or trying to buy a house. I don't care what it is, trying to sell a product. If you come up desperate, you're done. You're done yeah, in the water. I don't care who you don't are. Even, yeah, don't even, it doesn't matter what it is or what you're trying to do. If you come up desperate, you're, you're finished. 
you know, you're going to, you're going to be, you're, you're on the weekend of that negotiation. So you, you never want to be desperate. Even in the back of your mind, you might be thinking, oh man, if this doesn't work, I'm really screwed. You don't want the other person to know it. And that's an example right there of applying the 48 laws of power. That's, the, that's using deception to work for you. You know, yeah. we can't, we can't be perfectly honest about every single thing all the time. I mean, imagine if you were totally honest with you know, friends, family, your wife. I mean, I'm talking about every single thing. Like, how are you feeling today? And you're, and you're really irritated about something. So it's like, you're getting on my up. damn nerves today. That's, that's how I feel. Like, I wish you'd just off, shut the man. hell up for five minutes. And yeah. stop picking your damn nose. You're gross. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how I put my penis in you. Like, shut up. <laughs> well, guess what, dude? Yeah. I that's guarantee you this. You won't put your penis in her ever again if you say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's, uh, there's another book I really like called Freakonomics. I, yeah. I'm going to contact the authors to see if we can get them on the show because they would be really cool, too. But they, they have a podcast where they had a guest come on and the guest talked about how basically all of us have to fake it to some degree. And I'm not talking about stuff like fake it till you make it, like that kind of jargon. I'm talking about how we all have to fake certain behavior because otherwise people would literally be killing each other in the streets every day. <laughs> you know, someone runs you, someone cuts you off and you decide, you know what, I'm going to run this guy down and go kill him. You know, that's probably not going to work out in your favor. You have to let that one go. <laughs> but like, if we were perfectly blunt about every, in every single circumstance of our life, I mean, you would be arrested. I mean, I was going through customs one time in London, mm-hmm. and this lady was being a total bitch. I mean, she was just being a total bitch for no reason. And then she even, she even insisted on me showing my return flight back to the U.S., right? And I, and I, and I wanted to make a smart-ass comment like, come on, lady, do you really think anyone from America is trying to stay here, you know, in the U.K.? <laughs> like, we're trying, we're trying to get to the U.K. where it's several times more expensive and jobs are harder to find. I don't think so, right? I'm not coming from, you know, Paraguay or something. I'm coming from America. But, but if I said that, I can promise you she would have said, well, you know what? I think you need to go over to this line over here so we can scrutinize you further. And then I would have wasted the rest of the afternoon exactly. trying to get this, right? So I, I had to bite my tongue and just smile and deal with every single one of her idiotic questions, you know, no matter how stupid they were, no matter she kept on grilling me, I just kept on responding polite. And guess what? I won because I went through. She lost. She didn't get a rise out of me. Now, if I decide to just be like, you know, shut up, man. What the fuck is your problem? You know, like that kind of tone. It's not going to work in my favor. <laughs> All right? I mean, I mean that's, yeah. And like you said, like the old saying goes, you got to make the decision. Do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? Absolutely. That's a perfect <laughs> way to look at stuff right there. That's a you know, and I think that one question right there could really benefit so many people on so many levels throughout the day. It's yeah. like, do you just have to be right? And then at the end of the day, are you really right? You know, are you even, because again, it comes, it comes down to perspective for her. Hey, it's not your fault. She was, she has a miserable existence. It may have been like her whole existence, but for that day it was, and that was none of your business. So a lot well, of times when people are sitting there arguing with other people, you're, you're, first of all, you're inserting yourself into somebody else's business. If they're being rude, that's their effing business it has nothing to do with you. And if you're being an asshole, you, you being an asshole has nothing to do with them. So don't try to project your business on them. They didn't invest in it. <laughs> you know? I'll, give you another, I'll give you another example where I was on the wrong end of this time. And this is, this is way before 9-11 because, mm-hmm. if, I mean, folks, if you don't travel much, don't go to the airport and raise your voice at anyone, okay? Because you're going be, <laughs> to be arrested so fast, it's not even going to be funny, man. You, I, I'm talking about anyone. I'm talking about the lady checking you in, even if she's being a bitch or the like, security guy's being a jerk. And, and honestly, most of the time they're not, so you, you're probably not going to have to deal with it. But let's say for whatever reason you're dealing with that, 
you're just going to have to keep your cool, man. I'm telling you, if you, if you start getting, if you start raising your voice or, or throwing any kind of temper, see where that gets you. But anyway, one time, this is way before 9-11, I was flying, I was on my way to Kenya. I was going there for winter break in college. And I was in New York City getting on, I was actually getting in on a small plane from Ohio to New York City. Now, as I'm walking up the stairs, the steps on this, the guy above, the uh, stewardess basically, I don't know, I guess a flight attendant, not <laughs> would be more appropriate given that it's a male. But anyway, he's like, oh, you can't bring that bag up here, sir. And, I, and before he could even explain why, I just went off on the guy. I was like, don't give me that fucking bullshit. <laughs> just get the fuck out of my way. You know, I said something, something stupid like that, right? And the reason why I lost my temper like that is because my, I had a model as my father who always used to lose his temper with customer service situations. Right. Sometimes it was effective. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go off like a jerk and get what I want. Now, when I got on the plane, I realized why he told me not to bring the bag up there because there wasn't any space whatsoever. I couldn't put it under the chair in front of me. I couldn't put it overhead. So you know what I had to do? I had to eat crow <laughs> and apologize to the guy for losing hey. my temper like a jerk off. And meanwhile, everyone on the plane is looking at me like I'm a total douche, which I was in this situation. So I deserved that. So I had to eat crow and just apologize to the guy and say, look, I'm sorry I went off on you like that. Uh, you know, I'm having a rough day with all the different uh, flight cancellations and things like that. And it was actually cool. He was like, oh, cool, no problem, this and that. It worked out fine. But I learned a lesson that time. I was like, you know what? Is, is there really – was that really the right response for me to have? Was that really going to be effective, me just going off like that? You know, be – I mean, me being cool in that situation would have saved me a lot of hassle and embarrassment is where I'm right. going. So there's no point being a total jerk and losing your temper. And that's actually one of the laws – one of the 48 laws of power is don't ever lose your temper. Don't just go off and have these temper tantrums because right. uh, it, you lose when, – when you're someone – because it shows lack of self-control. So you can't be a powerful person. When you lack that level of self-control, and that is so true, but also it makes you look like a douchebag most of the time. Because yeah, if you're ever, even if you're right, you still look like a douchebag. But if you're wrong, you look like a total douche, <laughs> and, yeah. and that's not a fun feeling to have. So take it for. And me. it's not going to be very effective in the end. I mean, even no, if it's it something that's really going wrong in the world, getting pissed. I mean, just shouting and screaming. Okay, how is that helping to change yeah. the situation? Yeah, think about a customer you've had this year who's gone off on you for something stupid. Has, yep. does, does that make you really want to go out of your way to help that person? No. no. It makes you want to get rid of the person. Like, it makes it really easy for me to sit there and smile and say, well, you know what? You know, <laughs> if that's how you feel, and obviously you know, you're pretty upset and I can't change that, then this is not working. And guess yep. what? It's so funny. The tantrum ends. Because, again, people don't like rejection. No, they don't. <laughs> I, I had a guy buy my system. I had a guy buy my testosterone booster. He ordered it on Monday, and I told him it would get there on Friday. And for whatever reason, it didn't show up. And this guy sent me this email saying, I work really hard for my money, and the bottle didn't arrive on time. You're a liar. I want a refund right now. This is totally unacceptable. And it turns out not only it arrived, but there was some issue with his front desk where he lived, and that's why it wasn't delivered to his apartment. But before he even explained that to me, I responded back. And again, I didn't lose my temper. I just said, you know what? Your email is completely unacceptable. Send the product back to me. I'll be happy to give you a refund. That was it. No emotional mm -hmm. response. No like, oh, screw you, jerk, or anything right. like that. Really calm and composed. He responded back, now apologizing to me, saying, oh, you know, it was a screw up at the front desk. Really sorry about this, that, and so forth. And I responded back, saying, okay, you know, it's all right. I, I appreciate the apology. And, you know, I understand how you can get impatient waiting for something that you're really excited about getting. 
And uh, the guy, guy ended up buying a couple more bottles. I was just about to say that. I said, what happened? Did he buy more bottles? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, sometimes you can turn those negative situations around. So now imagine if I responded emotional like him. Imagine if I responded to saying, you know what? Screw me. Fuck you, motherfucker. And then you know, that, that wouldn't have benefited anyone because even so he, what? He even when he realized. He forum and flamed you. Exactly. You know, That's going on your fan page, you know, yep. and, and guess what? He might have copied and posted the email because I've seen that happen recently on Facebook well, where it was a big misunderstanding. and some stuff that was going on between two very prominent people in a certain part of the fitness industry. <laughs> and I felt like, you know, this could have been handled a lot better. Right. But they, were, they posted the text, the emails and all this. I'm like, oh, and yeah, you know, some people say like, well, <laughs> this need to be known because this, this, this party was being an asshole. But then there are going to be some that look like, well, so-and-so was being a big fucking baby for posting that. So right, it's kind exactly. of a situation. that's exactly. why I don't even get involved in all that stuff. I just kind of look back and, you know, I even, you know, my, um, it's so funny. Uh, Mike House, the guy that runs the gym with me. It's so funny. A lot of times I miss some of this stuff because I just really, I get on Facebook pretty much for our fan page, for my fan page, and just like stuff that has to do, you know, when I'm posting stuff with my family. But as far as looking in the feed, I try to avoid that because most of it is just so full of crap and everybody's just crappy life and they want the world to know about it. So, and so I always I don't have to look at it because my partner will come and tell me about it. Hey man, did you see this? Did you hear about so and so? You know on Facebook I was like really, they they really went they they went there. I was like oh well. I said it's a shame because now everybody sees that stuff and all that's doing is just killing their credibility. You know so I, just I don't even want to be the one to get involved with that stuff. I don't want to be the one to see that crap and, and hit the like button because now <laughs> it, that's me yeah. approving yeah. their yeah. their behavior. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't, I don't even, I don't even I don't approve people. or disapprove. I don't give a damn. No, my my attitude about that is I don't want to hit like because then people are going to know that I actually, that I actually spent the time to read this. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want anyone knowing that. So that comes back to another law about the shit, okay? There's certain things I look at throughout my day, okay, which I don't want people to know that I did that. <laughs> and, one about, and one thing about Facebook, Facebook is a big snitch. Oh, I know. <laughs> and I always laugh. Total, like total uh, a couple times, like I log in, and of course you know the feed will pop up. I'll see some. <laughs> I'll, I'll see some studies who have, like went on some of these say almost explicit Facebook fan pages, and they've liked pictures. And these dudes are like married, <laughs> and, yeah. and they're talking about how they love their wife and da 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 da. And and then they they've like liked a picture on like bigbootybroads.com's you know fan. <laughs> And then say so and so like this picture of <laughs> big big butt Bertha's G string. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're liking the page a uh, hundred of the best twats in the world, you know. <laughs> it's like look folks, go look at it. Go look at it, but don't like it, okay? <laughs> oh man. No, it's, Latina Nichols fan page. So and so like he's like, no, dude, no. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, hot chicks with dicks. It's like, wait a minute, let me let me let me go like that. <laughs> oh, oh, you you didn't think anyone else would know, huh? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> the internet, no, bro. There's no, there's no anonymity on the internet. Oh, <laughs> and guess what? That's a part of that's a that's now a part of history. You can delete it and unlike it all you want, but now Google's got you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true, man. That's the thing. That's a good. That's a good point you brought up early, though, about how I mean, when you're responding to someone by email, assume that that think about 
think about a think about a response that someone's going to cut and uh, paste and light it up the internet with. You know, that's yep. that's kind of the, always the way I think whenever I respond. So if I'm dealing with an ordinary customer, and, and to be honest, most of my customers are awesome people, man. I'm very fortunate where I mean, I just I, I just have great people buy my products. So most of the time, it's a pleasure to get an email from someone and have a nice exchange. So it's not like something I deal with all day long. But every once in a while, you'll deal, you'll deal with someone like I just mentioned. And I don't even think that guy's a bad guy. I think he might have been having a bad day and he was just irritated. It was a misunderstanding. You know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's why I didn't react in, a, in a, an emotional fashion. Because that would have just, you've got fire, now I'm just going to throw gasoline on the fire, now the whole place burns down. So, but at the same time, I'm also not going to respond like a chump and say, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, because I wasn't in the wrong here. I had the delivery confirmation number knowing that it arrived and so right. forth. So I'm not going to be a chump and let some guy mull over me either because my attitude is if this customer saw me on the street, and he, would he come up and talk to me like this? And if, if he did, my response wouldn't be with words. It would be with my right hand slapping his face as hard as possible. You know, he, he would know real fast how, how the rotational kettlebells that carries over <laughs> to a bitch slap, all right? Oh, and it carries man. over very officially. But anyway, you know, here's my email where I'm just going to respond and say, firm, like, look, your, your email to me is totally unacceptable, so go ahead and send the product back for a refund. So that's firm, but still polite. So if he right. cut and posted that somewhere on Facebook, go ahead. So what? I'm not responding in a way that I'm going to deny or be ashamed of. I'm responding in a way that is, is appropriate. For this situation, to be frank, now, but also, funny, but also, know, it allows it makes it also allows the other person to realize, you know what, I, I probably did overreact, so I'm going to go ahead right. and apologize. There you go. Now I still have a customer instead of losing. This guy's mad, and even when he finds that he's wrong, I respond in a way that's unacceptable. So now he's still pissed off, and then you just have what? What do you? What do you? What did you gain out of that? Nothing. So I mean, right. like what you said, you want to be happy or you want to be right, and if that's a good way to look at how you should respond to certain situations. Right. And there's something amazing about actually like stepping back. One thing about it, like sometimes like, like just like you, I have great customers, great clients. And every now and then you're going to have that one at least probably every few months or whatever. But one thing about it, one thing I've learned is to never react. (laughs) Somebody, I always tell people there's a difference between reacting and responding. Responding to me is like, okay, first of all, a lot of times I don't answer an email right away in a negative situation. I, I won't do that. I'm just like, you know what? Because especially if I, if I feel just in a bit way that it kind of pissed me off, <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, definitely I'm going to take a little bit. I'm going to take a little bit here. I'm not going to respond right now. I'm going to come back right. to this. I'm right. going to come back to this. First of all, A, let me remove the emotional aspect of it right now because, okay, obviously I let it piss me off. Now that's what I said, why are you pissed off? So right. is it because they're right? Or you, do you feel disrespected? Because usually that's usually the, the two things that are happening right there. Do you feel disrespected, and do you feel, or do you feel like they're they're right? And my thing is, the only way you can really feel disrespected is if you let someone disrespect you. And that's one of the things that you handle with yours. You're like, okay, first of all, you know, this is, you know, the tone of this email is just not right. Okay, yeah. this is not going to work. But I'm willing to give you a refund. So there was the respect aspect right there. Like, okay, you. You may not be happy. You don't have to necessarily keep the product. I'll give you a refund, but look, dude, we're human at the end of the day. Always remember, there's a human on the other end of this email. Please, right. you're going to have to respect me as a human being. You know, you just can't talk to me any kind of way and expect some kind of effective communication. And I think most of us just need to just take a step back. Just like even when that, when that dingbat cuts you off in traffic, why do you have to go chasing after him? A lot of times, especially in my state, that's not a good idea. 
<laughs> not in a concealed carry state. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. So my thing is, okay, and he cut you off. So what? Are you still going to get to where you need to be? Did he hit you? Did you have a wreck? No. Calm down. What, what other issues are going on right here? Just let him be a douche on his own. You don't have to join him. He, let him be the president of the douchebag club. You don't have to be a new member. Okay? So... Now, I'm telling you, being cool will get you so far, too. I mean, you don't have to be a chump and be – I mean, being cool doesn't mean you're a chump. You can exactly. still be firm. I mean, just flying out to Holland this past week, and there was, there was someone in front of me who was being kind of a jerk to the lady that was checking this all in. So when it was my turn to go up there, I made a joke about that. I was like, oh, boy, I guess that uh, fills your quota for jerk-offs for today or something like that. Right? <laughs> she kind of chuckled at that. And I was like, you know, are you having a pretty good day besides that? She's like, yeah, you know, it's going pretty good. And she's like, how are you doing? We had a nice little exchange. And then she's like, hey, you know what? I'm looking at the flight chart here, and you're seated over here in Economy Plus, but I could move you up here where you'll have way more leg room. There's no one sitting next to you. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. Thanks a lot. And there you go, man. Now, imagine if I went up to her and was a continuation of the jerk before me. You really yeah. think she would have she been like, you know what? I'm going to move this guy right next to the bathroom. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which and, is the uh, worst seat in the world because yeah. hey, that seat doesn't recline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's people always over there. So there's people always there's people always coming in and out of there. And so it's international flight, so somebody's gonna blow it up. <laughs> and guess who's gonna have to smell it for a couple of hours. You know you know what's funny is uh, when people don't lock the door completely but it but it says <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I went to use the bathroom man on my flight back. And, of course, there's a little green button there. So I'm assuming that there's no one in there. So I, I just pushed the door open. <laughs> there was a lady in there on the can, and she kicked that door back towards me so fast. I mean, I, I, didn't mean, I, I saw her on the can, but I didn't, I didn't see anything, right, because she had a long skirt on or anything, which I'm glad. I don't want that visual. But anyway, but, but what was funny is that when she felt that pressure of me opening the door, I mean, she did a ballistic kick so fast. I thought the door was going to break. It was like hilarious. Girl, it was like, boom. I was like, I was like, Ronda Rousey in a lot of trouble with that kick, girl. I was like, you know, for a lady who's got such a forceful kick, you should have used a little bit more pressure when you slided that little tab over so that the door is locked, okay? It's like, how do you not know the door is locked? Because the light doesn't come on fully, all right? I mean, I, I double-checked that stuff. <laughs> I double-check that stuff. I don't want anyone walking in on me in there. <laughs> You're probably like, oh, wow, this has got nice, sexy, like, lighting. Oh, it's nice. <laughs> I like the bathroom. It was hilarious, man. But you know, being a little prankster that I am, on, on my flight back from Dubai last year, I remember there was someone in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the knob there said green on it. So someone's walking over. And uh, she asked someone else, not me, is there anyone in there? And that person was like, no. And I knew there was someone in there, but I was like, oh, let me see what happens here. <laughs> sure enough. Sure enough. So, oh, oh, hold on. Which, which law of power is this about manipulation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is about how to amuse yourself on a 15-hour flight, okay? <laughs> Something to talk about on the podcast. So, of course, this lady opens up. The other lady there is like, ah! And she's like, ah! Yeah, was, it was hilarious, man. It was so funny. Oh, man. I was just cracking up. Yeah, this, this is the kind of amusing things you try to come up with on a plane. It's like, how am I going to entertain myself here? You know, I've listened to Robert's book for five hours now. I watched two crappy movies. Still got a couple hours to go. <laughs> oh, oh man. man. All right, Betty. So, um, what do you got coming up, man? I got. I know uh, you just got back from Holland. So, what's next? Yeah, I had a good trip in Holland. Nice people out there. And I've got New York City coming up next month. And that's going to be my last U.S. course this year, and maybe the last U.S. course ever. I'm not going to totally be cryptic about that, but I have no plans to do any workshops next year. 
Now, does that mean I made two workshops the following year? Maybe. But next year, I'm, I'm, taking the, I'm taking the year off to focus on other things. And I'm actually looking forward to doing that. I love teaching workshops, but looking forward to taking a break, focusing on other areas. And then I've got a workshop with uh, Dan John and Sabina Scala in London in October. It's going to be a two-day event. It's going to be a great one. And then the following weekend, Dublin, Ireland. And that's going to wrap up the year for me. I thought about scheduling one more course, and then I decided, you know what? I'm just going to leave it at that and just right. uh, keep focusing on other stuff I'm working on. How about yourself? Uh, dude, right now, it's like I was training for the International Kettlebell Games, but had a little slightly, it's not a full-on injury, but it's one of those situations where you kind of know, like, you know what? I might want to back off a little bit and, and let this take care of itself and, and not push it. So I'm just kind of seeing where this shoulder issue is going. And it's been kind of a little off and on thing right you know, right now. So just kind of watching that for right now. So I probably, I might end up still, you know, going out there to the International Football Games in September uh, next month. But um, definitely, you know, I'm going to just see where the training goes from here. I'm not going to try to push it. And, you know, you got to be honest with yourself, folks, no matter what it is, whether you're getting ready for a competition or whatever and you got these goals set. Again, you know, Mike and I talk about the whole thing about being unattached to a, you know, a result. And that's one of the things that can actually keep you from hurting yourself even further by being unattached to a result. Like, you know, yeah, I want to go to, the, you know, the games and get this, this, and this and do this. It's the first one, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? You know, I know, for sure, you know, there's going to be another one, you know, and that one's going to be even bigger. So, it, I mean, what's the big deal? It's like if I don't make it and don't compete in this one, well, what's going to be the big deal? I, I can't say that, oh, yeah, I competed in the very first one. Who's going to give a damn five years from now? You know, who, who's the person walking around right now talking about they competed in the first CrossFit Games? You know, here it is, what, damn near, what, six, seven, eight, nine years later? Who cares? Right. You know, at this point, <laughs> you know? You know, because most people are remembering the last one or maybe the one right before that. As more and more happen, that first one becomes a distant memory. You know, unless it's been archived or something like that. Then it's like, oh, look at so-and-so. But who's going to care about that? So right. ego aside, it's just like, you know, I, I, I value my body more than my ego. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, because think, think about it, the ego comes and goes, and it's a very fickle EMF, and it can really care less about you. I need this body as long as I'm going to be here. So, yeah. You know, I got to, you know, take care of myself with that. So probably, like I said, I'm just going to scale back and see what happens with that. But, again, for all of you who are not injured <laughs> and make it and compete, definitely check out the internationalkettlebellgames.com. Um, it's going to be pretty freaking awesome. That happens next month. And um, other than that, man, the only thing I have coming up beside that is just um, teaching with Ken for the IKFF cert here in Houston in October. That information you can find on my website, newwarriortraining.com. And everyone, I know Mike has the discount on his supplements. I have the discount on my DVD. When you use the discount code LLA at checkout, um, you'll get 30% off my DVD and I believe 10% off your supplements, Mike, on your website, correct? Yep, that's exactly right. And then also, we, as always, we always like to support an organization that we're both compa are very passionate about, which is Transitions Global. We had our friend James Pond on the show back on to episode, was it 10? 10. Yeah, yeah 10. And uh, he, he has an organization that helps victims of human trafficking. And I actually just got an email from him recently saying he's, he's loving the results with aggressive strength and the recovery oil. Right. And he's actually going to be in the U.S. for a couple of months working with <clears throat> U.S. law enforcement on human trafficking in the U.S. So we'd love to have him come back on the show maybe right. maybe later this month, maybe next month, and we'll, we'll discuss that topic and just catch up with what he's doing. But go to go to transitionsglobal.org and it, it, it's .org, right? Since you're not yeah, uh, .org. Yeah, .org. 
and uh, just check out what they're doing. They've got some good videos on there. They've got some blogs. Great organization that, again, helps people that have just been victimized by a horrible human trafficking. And that's something that we can all get behind and, and support this. So it's, it's an organization I'm happy to support. James is a stand-up guy. When you donate to them, you know the money's going to a good cause. It's not going to someone's trust fund or Hawaii vacation or anything like that. Right. Yeah. And then finally, we have a looks like some good UFC fights this Saturday or tomorrow rather. Yes, you got Chael and Shogun. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I think Chael is probably going to pull that one off by yeah. decision. What do you think? Like, I think he's. Just I don't know unless out. Shogun pulls a. <laughs> I don't know. He pulls like a, a, a spinning back fist out of nowhere, or, or some type of wheel kick that we weren't expecting. <laughs> I think that's a possibility. In the like sense Vitor that did been, that, and yeah, nobody expected he, Vitor in that last fight to do that. And we're like, whoa, where'd that come from? He's working <laughs> so. with Freddie Roach, and apparently his striking has improved a great deal. And he's always been a good striker. So yeah. I'm, I'm tempted to put a little bit of money on Shogun actually because he's a two to one underdog. And actually, you know what? I don't think he's a two to one underdog. I think he might be a one to one, a one to one underdog, or maybe a, maybe they're slightly on the same plane. I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. But if he's if he's an underdog, I think I may put a little bit of money just for fun on Shogun. And then we've got Alistair Overeem versus Travis Brown. I'm gonna. I, if, I'm kind of going with Travis Brown on this one, man. Really? Really. <laughs> I'm going with Travis on this one. I, I think people are sleeping on Travis. I think people still think. I don't know, man. I just I really think that. I don't know. I'm still, we talked about this before, and I just really feel like, I don't know, with there's this, this thing going with the Black Zillions right now. Right. It's just like, just the, the consistency is just like, I don't know, man. Right. I don't know. I, I just feel like maybe if they just had, I don't know, if, if Rashad was, could step back and actually just focus more on himself and not have to just pull the duties of being the leader, the coach, and try to you know, focus on his career as well. I, yeah. You know, it's kind of like um, what's happening um, when uh, when you have like you know Faber and those guys. They brought in Dwayne Ludwig to help them. You know, I mean, look how those look how those guys have like turned around. Everybody right. in that camp, yeah. you know, and I think that's really helped them a lot. So therefore, you know, Faber can now can just focus a little bit more on himself, right? And, and you know, instead of just being the guy that's running the business, being the coach, it's kind of like, again just kind of wearing all these hats, man. It's, it's really hard to have all these other things going on and, and truly be focused. On, on, on a true goal right here. It's like you really got to make a decision here. So just like, you know, we talked about, you know, Rashad wants another f- run of the title. Well, I think he's going to release some of those responsibilities with the Black Zillions in order to do that and actually even have a chance at that. And right. at least look somewhat like the old Rashad that he, that he, you know, that he was. It's like the fire, a lot of times it seems like the fire's not there, but I think it's more of a, dist- too many distractions going on, man. I think you're right. I think that's a good point, actually. I think remove those distractions. Sometimes, I mean, he may, have to, he may have to move to another camp again where he is not the sole, like, the one that's carrying everything on his shoulders. Yeah, just think about, think about how distractions just affect your workouts. And our, yeah. our workouts are just hobby things. You know, we're not professional athletes. So, I mean, when, when, our work, when our little workouts a couple times a week are affected so heavily by whatever distractions we may have in our life, I mean, think about how pronounced that will be for professional athletes. Right. So I think you bring up a really good point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, on the mixed bag with, with Alistair Overeem versus Travis Brown. I'm, I'm leaning towards Alistair just because I think that after he got his, his clock cleaned out by uh, <laughs> Bigfoot that he may want to come back and, and prove something in decisive fashion. But that doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't mean that Travis Brown is not motivated either. You know, exactly. it's not like, so it's like, yeah, I'm sure Overeem really is motivated, but there's two guys in the ring. It's not just him. So I'm going to have to look at that. 
you know, I'll probably take a look at what his physique looks like during the weigh ins. Yeah. And uh, that might, that might, the thing about betting on Overeem is he's a two to one favorite. I don't really like betting on fights where it's a two to one favorite because you're, you're risking a good amount with not a whole lot to gain. Right, so it's kind of like exactly. a pointless bet, and then things can always go wrong. I bet on Overeem versus Bigfoot. I thought that yeah. was a shoe in, and I lost that. So I mean, it's just, it's, it's like I don't want a repeat of that. So I mean, I, I've been thinking about Travis Brown too. I mean, if he's a two to one underdog and has even a, a fair chance, you know, it's worth leaning the money that way a little bit. Yeah. Instead of just going with the two to one favorite, who 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 knows may get may lose again. But some people are like, oh, he's got a weak chin. But, uh, I don't, I, you know, this other guy made a good point, Brendan Schaub. He goes, everyone's got a weak chin when there's a heavyweight guy punching you in the chin. You know? Yeah. It's like all those guys are, are just got serious I mean, striking I mean, you pop him in the right place. I mean, did anyone think that, okay, that JDS had a weak chin? <laughs> yeah, right. of course. I mean, he didn't get hit in the chin. He got popped behind, you know, well, excuse me, I take that back, Kane. Did anybody think that yeah. Kane had, like, yeah, a weak yeah, chin? Yeah. But when JDS popped him behind that ear – you know, okay, forget his chin. Um, let's talk about equilibrium, okay? <laughs> and see how that works. Like, dude, it does. One thing about this, about MMA, anything can happen. Nothing's guaranteed, and it doesn't matter. I mean, hell, Chris Lieben's got a tough as nails chin too, but a couple of beats to the head right there, he's gonna go out. <laughs> you know, one thing about he's gonna go out. Anybody can. So, so yeah, if you have a tough chin, okay, no problem. That means they're gonna focus on another body part. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. And then what's the, what's the other got, fight on? Got um. Well, you got um. Matt Brown and Mike Pyle. Yeah. Oh, again, it's just I, I'm still not at that point where I can just be like all about Matt Brown sometimes. Because right, again, right. again, I just go by his past. It's like sometimes just been sneaky losses in there that shouldn't have happened. Right. But then he, right. And every time he builds momentum, something just uh, crazy happens. Like what the hell, right. <laughs> you know? So. And I don't know. I think I'm gonna go with Pyle on that one, man. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. That one I haven't looked at as closely. The, the, the Overeem one I've looked at pretty closely. The Chael yeah, Sonnen, Faber Chael and Alcantara. Yeah, and uh, with the Faber fight, I've heard the opponent, who most people don't know that much about, is yeah. actually a bad, very. You know, I'm not gonna say he's a bad. I was about to say he's a bad matchup, but you know, who isn't a bad matchup? You know, right. when you're when you're fighting someone who wants to take your head off, it's not a good matchup. Yeah. And you got, oh, yeah, you, know, sure. Uriah, you got Uriah Hall. You know, it's like, I think, hopefully, I, think, I hope Uriah is shaking off this, this prodigy of the middleweight that people saw him as during the Ultimate Fighter. Right, right. That he would be the next guy to take over the throne after Anderson Silva. You know, right. and I, I hope that, you know, that pressure has kind of worn off now and he can just be, be the talent that he is. And, I mean, because that dude is, he's dangerous. He's dangerous. But the thing is, you know, being that young and, in the, you know, in the game with the UFC or whatever, you definitely got to have your head on straight to match that talent. Right. And so, and I think that's one of the things that has really helped John Jones, you know, just really having the, the mental state to go with the talent itself because we all know talent isn't enough. It isn't, it isn't enough. No, no, it never is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but there should I'm, be I'm interesting. I'm going to Hall over Howard on that one, though. I'm, I'm going to go with him on this one. Actually, I'm I'm looking at like a knockout in the second round. Yeah, I think that's I think that's highly probable as well. I, th- I think he, I, I think he also feels like he has something to prove. Like he's yeah. a very talented guy, and he's like, you know what? I don't want I don't want I'm gonna, it's time to wash off that that stain from the last fight. So it's like yeah. I feel, that's why I feel like Overeem's coming in very motivated. But like I said, it's, it's not like Travis Brown is not coming in motivated either. <laughs> you know, so right. it's gonna be interesting to see how it all plays out. Hopefully, it's not. You know what? 
whoever wins or loses, I, ho- I just hope it's not boring like some of the last few events have been. You know, some of them have yeah. been really boring. Yeah, but so, you know uh, what's so funny? Usually the, the free ones are not boring. It's the ones you pay for that end up being boring. Yeah, that's true. So, that's it's true. like uh, that's why the last time I was like, yeah, I kept my forty-five bucks this time, dude. And from what I was, you know, <laughs> the, the real-time reports, the one time I actually went on Facebook because usually I try to avoid Facebook whatsoever because you know right. I always have my friends that want to post them. I want like don't post on my wall because I'm getting those alerts on my phone too. But this is the right. one time I didn't mind. I'm like, eh. Save my forty-five bucks, and I'll just get <laughs> through your cable bill. <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking at Joe Lozon over uh, Michael Johnson too, man. Yeah, me too. I like Submission in the third round is what I'm saying. Yeah, Joe Lozon, he's a stud, so that that should be a really good one. Yeah, and he needs to, you know, after that last fight, you know, just kind of, yeah, I'm I'm go with him on this one, man. But I mean, this is on paper for people who are not like like re- like longtime fight fans or really know about much of these guys. It probably doesn't look like much to them. But I'm seeing some really good matchups right here, man. Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some good matchups, and I can, I see some barn burners that could happen, <laughs> you know. No, I'm looking forward to it, actually. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited to go check this one out. So I think it'll be a good time. Cool. And uh, I think that's about it. I hope everyone yeah, has man. a great weekend, and I really enjoyed talking to Robert Green. That was cool. Oh, man, that was awesome. Hopefully yeah. we get him back on, man. It's just so much stuff he can, you know, he has to share. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very intelligent guy, man. Yeah, super intelligent. So we'll definitely work on getting him back on, and we'll have another great show next week. So thanks a lot for listening, everyone. See you soon. Take care.